Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20. I'll read the the, the section that I read at the beginning of the service, but we're going to be focusing in on verse 20. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20. I'll read the whole section partly too because it is one sentence in the Greek. So starting in verse 19 through the end of verse 22. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So last week we looked at verse 19 where Paul says, do not quench the spirit. And we saw that in the Greek there, the form is more literally, stop quenching the Spirit. So Paul essentially is saying, quit doing what you're doing. You're quenching the Spirit, stop quenching the Spirit. And and here in verse 20, we now have a particular way, I think, that the Thessalonians are quenching the Spirit. They are doing it by despising prophetic utterances. Interestingly, the construction in verse 20 is the same in verse, as in verse 19. So you can say, uh, do not, or sorry, quit despising prophetic utterances, or stop despising prophetic utterances. As it said in verse 19, stop quenching the spirit. So not only were they quenching the spirit, but they were despising prophetic utterances, and Paul is saying, cease doing that. Quit doing that. So we, we can, we can, figure that they were doing it in some ways and that Paul was, was requesting that they stop or commanding them to stop. This despising could mean set it not or count as nothing or ignoring. It is, it is stronger than uh, quit de-emphasizing. It's more like they were ignoring it or, or saying that prophecy is nothing and setting it aside and Paul saying you need to quit doing that. You are in, a, in essence setting aside the Holy Spirit. And so how are we to understand this passage and apply it to our lives? Especially, as we'll we'll proceed, how are we to understand and apply this as a church that would not claim to be charismatic or Pentecostal? This is something, that the practice of prophecy, that we'd often associate with a Pentecostal or a charismatic church. So we will look at this passage by looking first at what prophecy is, what Paul means here by prophecy, or in the New American Standard, prophetic utterances. Then we will look at how one could despise it, or maybe how the Thessalonians uh, would despise it. And finally, we will look at what it means, what would it mean to do the opposite of despising it and embracing it, embracing prophecy. So first, first question, what does Paul mean here by prophecy or prophetic utterances. Now, of course, this is, we could open a big can of worms here because this has been hotly debated through the centuries of the church. This has been a perennial discussion, and of course, we've seen denominations line up on either side of this question. Generally speaking, the charismatic or Pentecostal would line up more on the side of prophecy being a gift that is encouraged and celebrated in the church and it's often manifested in this, these extravagant displays of foretelling the future and, 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 and saying things that are secret uh, that no one knows. And so people are all amazed that this prophet has done this. Or you can see churches that kind of line up on the other side, which maybe you can call more cessationist churches that believe the gifts have ceased, that prophecy is not meant to be used in the churches these days, but that it was only given to the first century church. And so you would see, in fact, no practice of prophecy accepted in the church. So what are we to make of this? Now, again, there's a lot of ways we can go down this road. There's a lot of ways we can handle this. But we want to be careful that we don't run off into ignoring this passage and try to to have this this complete uh, study of prophecy while missing kind of Paul's point here. That's just something that a line that you have to kind of walk when you're studying the scriptures, that you don't want to just use a text to jump off into a topical study, but that you try to stay as close to the text. And what what is Paul saying here? What does he mean by prophecy? And how are we to follow what he says by not despising it? We don't want to make this mistake of saying, well, this doesn't apply to us because we don't practice prophecy. Well, you can see the danger of that. You could almost 
in that, in that very wording of it, the way I just worded it, you can almost seem to be despising prophecy. We don't practice prophecy. Well, be careful, brother, you're not despising it by setting it aside, setting it as not, ignoring it. So let's look at, let's look at these two sides, generally speaking, and I think you can sum them up in two ways. If you read commentators on this passage, often you'll see them kind of using these, these words to, to summarize both sides. Foretelling or forth-telling. Foretelling or forth-telling. Meaning, foretelling is some, telling something about the future, that you're telling, you're predicting the future. That's kind of more like they, you foretell something is going to happen. Forth-telling is more holding forth or telling forth the word of God. That's generally how those two words are used. Now, some commentators would say, that prophecy here in Paul's in this passage, Paul means forth-telling, that you're preaching the word of God, that you're telling forth the word of God. Now, as we'll talk more about in a moment, I think that is an element that is uh, foundational to prophecy. Even if you lean more toward foretelling, as we see throughout even the Old Testament and the New Testament, that the prophets, they proclaim the word of God. They would proclaim the law of God, and then they would apply it to their hearers to say, you have run afoul of this commandment, of this law. So they are, even as they foretell in the Old Testament, they are also forthtelling. They're saying, here's what God says in his law. Here's how you have run afoul of that. Have you have broken that? Here's God's judgment to come. And there's the foretelling. So we don't want to ever get too far away from this telling of the word of God. Even if you say, well, we're going to emphasize foretelling and predicting the future and kind of this sensationalistic prophecy, I would suggest, and I think the New Testament bear this out, that it never gets away from the word of God. That we are careful not to wander off into adding things or coming up with things in our mind. That this is what God says, that we are rooted and grounded in God's word. So we are foretelling at our foundation. So let's look at these two, foretelling and foretelling. Foretelling, as I mentioned, is prophecy that uh, predicts the future, but it also could be prophecy that focuses on a revelation from God. This is another way you can define it. Uh, The prophecy that is a revelation from God that discloses the secrets of the future or the secrets of the heart. Now, proponents of this view, as, as, as I mentioned earlier, can often be found in charismatic or Pentecostal circles. But there are some who are Baptistic, who are, uh, who are not in the Pentecostal camp. But proponents of this view would generally see continuity between the Old Testament version of prophecy and the New Testament version. So they would see the prophets of the Old Testament, and they would say, this is how we are to understand prophecy in the New Testament, by looking at the prophets of the Old Testament. And they would point in the New Testament to people like Agabus in Acts 21, who predicts, he tells the future, that Paul will be captured by the Jews and turned over to the Gentiles. You may remember the story. He takes Paul's belt and binds up his hand and binds up his feet, and he says, the owner of this belt will be bound by the Jews and delivered, by, delivered to the Gentiles. Proponents of this view would also point to 1 Corinthians 14.25, where Paul describes prophecy as revealing the secrets of the hearts of unbelievers who attend a church service. You may remember that passage. They come in and the secrets of of their hearts are revealed by prophecy and they fall on their face and say, surely God is among them. So those what foretellers would emphasize those passages and say, prophecy is this supernatural revelation from God that discloses the future or discloses the secrets of the heart. Those who lean more toward foretelling, their view is that prophecy is nothing more than speaking or preaching and applying the word of God to hearers. They would say that you are just telling forth the word of God. One example of this would be John Calvin's definition that he uses to define what Paul is saying here in 1 Thessalonians 5. He defines prophecy as the interpretation of scripture properly applied according to time, persons, and things present. So you notice a couple of things there. One, his view is that prophecy is the word of God uh, uh, interpreted. And secondly, it is the word of God applied. The interpretation of the word of God applied to a specific time, to a specific person or persons, and to a specific thing. Or you can look at J.I. Packer's definition, which I like. He says, prophecy is 
God prompted application of truth. God prompted application of truth. So their view is that foretelling is prophecy is foretelling, meaning that you are applying God's word to a specific environment or situation or time. That the key thing there is the application of God's word. In other words, in their view, prophecy is essentially faithful biblical preaching. The verses that they would use to support this view are in 1 Corinthians 14 again, which of course is a chapter on prophecy. Verse 3, where it says, One who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. So they would say prophecy is nothing more than applying the word of God to, to, uh, publicly for the edification, exhortation, and consolation of men. They'd say that's preaching. Furthermore, in verse 31 of chapter 14, 1 Corinthians says, For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. So they would say that's again preaching. When you preach, people are learning and people are exhorted. That's what prophesying is. And then another verse they would use is Acts 15.32, which says, Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. So their view is that they just preached, essentially, and their preaching was prophetic in that it encouraged and strengthened the brethren. So prophecy is nothing more than faithful biblical preaching. So which is it? Now, again, we, we have a dividing line across even, even among uh, in, in, in denominations. They were the denomination is split according to what people view as the gifts of the Spirit, whether they are normative for the Christian life, normative for the church life. So there's the big debate about this. But let me suggest a third view, which is one I hold. That is, that biblical prophecy is both of these. Biblical prophecy is both of these. It is both foretelling and foretelling. It is both foretelling and foretelling, meaning it is telling forth the word of God. Like I would agree with this second point where it's God-prompted application, that you are preaching the word of God, but you're doing it in a way, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, to where you are applying it to the time, to the people, to the hearer. You're not just saying, God says this but you're applying biblically, you're careful to be biblical in your application, but you are pointed and confrontational in some ways in your application. I think that is true biblical prophecy. But at the same time, I think biblical prophecy can also be referred to as foretelling, that you are discerning the secrets of the heart, that God is giving you a revelation, that you may tell the future, you may tell the secrets of the heart, but we must be careful, and we'll say more about this in a moment, that we are governed by Scripture and that we don't wander off into focusing on the gifts and elevating the gifts above the giver, above the Word of God. Now, why do I hold this view? Well, one of the big reasons is I see prophecy in the New Testament as being different from prophecy in the Old Testament. Now, charismatics often will see a continuity between the Old and the New And so you'll hear them say something like, God told me in a vision this. Or I heard the audible voice of Jesus say this. And so they're taking their cues from the Old Testament prophets, which of course did that often. God appeared to me. God, an angel appeared to me. God says this, and I'm coming to you, and I'm speaking the very words that God has spoke to me. I don't think we see that in the New Testament. I think New Testament prophecy is fundamentally different. And I'll give you several ways. First, as I mentioned, the prophets in the Old Testament spoke the very words of God. They would say, thus saith the Lord. But in the New Testament, so if they said, thus saith the Lord, you ignored them at your own peril. But in the New Testament, it seems that prophets were not expected to speak the very words of God. Thus, they didn't have the same authority. There are several ways we see this. Number one, we see that prophecies in the New Testament are to be judged or tested. I think this is what Paul is describing here in verse 21 of our passage. He says, do not despise prophetic utterances, verse 21, this is 1 Thessalonians 5, but examine everything carefully. So I think verse 20 and 21 are connected. Do not despise prophetic utterances. In other words, allow prophecy, but make sure, verse 21, that you examine the prophecy carefully. Now, he does expand it to everything, 
But I think that everything includes prophecy. And I would say the verse 19, the work of the Spirit. Don't just be like, we welcome the Spirit here. And then someone stands up and says, the Spirit told me that y'all have to give me a million dollars. And everyone's like, well, we, we acknowledge the Spirit. Let's everyone give him a million dollars. No, I think Paul is saying in verse 21, be careful to examine everything. Don't just take everything, all the Spirit's moving, but to judge carefully whether or not this is a true prophecy of the Spirit or whether or not this is a movement of the Spirit. I think we see that in a few places as well. In 1 Corinthians 14, the chapter I referenced earlier, in verse 29, Paul says, this is his chapter on prophecy, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. I think it's clear that he means let the others pass judgment on what is prophesied. Can you imagine that happening in the Old Testament? That doesn't happen in the Old Testament. Yes, there are tests of prophets in the Old Testament, whether or not what they say comes to pass and they are judged as false. But if there is an understood prophet that someone who has prophesied before, like Nathan or somebody like that, that they come to David and they say, thus saith the Lord, David's not going to be like, well, hold on, I need to get some of my guys over here and they're going to judge what you just said. There's a fundamental difference, I think, between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy. Now, what are they judging? I think they're judging whether or not this is a, a word from God, that they are judging based on Scripture. Does this line up with Scripture? Does this contradict Scripture? And they are careful to discern what is said based on that standard. We also see in 1 John 4.1, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So I think he's saying that these people are to pass judgment on this prophecy to say, is this true from the Spirit? Because we want to be careful that we don't have false prophets or prophecy in our churches. We want to guard the church. As I mentioned, there was an Old Testament test for prophets, but there seems to be more of an emphasis on judging prophecy in the New Testament church than in the Old Testament. That's the first reason. Number two, second reason why I think New Testament prophecies are different from Old Testament prophecies is that New Testament prophecies could be ignored. Could be ignored. In Acts 21, interesting verse, Acts 21 verse 4, Paul lands in Tyre, and it says, After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul, key phrase here, through the Spirit, not to set foot in Jerusalem. So it seems like they're saying, here is a word from God, a word from the Spirit. Don't go to Jerusalem. It goes on to say, Paul goes to Jerusalem. Right? So he is ignoring, which seems to be a word from the Spirit. And so if this was Old Testament kind of prophecy, Paul would, at his peril, ignore a prophecy from God. But I think in the New Testament, there's a difference in that this, is, this may be from God, but it doesn't carry the same authority as it did in the Old Testament. Number three, the third reason why I think New Testament prophecy is different is that New Testament prophecy could be wrong and they wouldn't take the guy out and stone him. Here's a few verses later in Acts 21, verse 11. The same story I mentioned earlier, Agabus he comes to us and he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And Paul continues on to Jerusalem anyway. And if you remember the story, Paul is not bound by the Jews and handed to the Gentiles. In fact, Paul is grabbed by the Jews and they are seeking to kill him when the Gentiles come save him from the Jews and then the Gentiles bind him and eventually send him to Caesar. And so Agabus is generally correct, but in the details he is not as correct as would be required in the Old Testament. So I think for these reasons that New Testament prophecy is something different than Old Testament prophecy. I think New Testament prophecy is foretelling in that God could disclose secrets of the future or secrets of the heart but that it is not to be viewed as authoritative revelation from God in the way that Old Testament prophecy was. Now, this is important because often people will, especially Charismatics and some Pentecostals, will view prophecy as, thus saith the Lord. What I am saying is an authoritative revelation of God. And I think that's dangerous. 
I think if we're going to be more faithful to the New Testament, we will say more like as the disciples use the wording in Acts 15, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. It seems as if God is impressing this upon us. It seems as if God is directing us in this direction. We need to be careful, I think, and the New Testament, I think, bears this out, to be careful that we don't say, God is saying this. Why? Because I think it's easy for us to be deceived, and we can, we can think a thought and be like, that's God. And so we need to be very careful to do it within the context of the church and have people judge and say, okay, wait a minute, like we, we don't have a clear biblical mandate nor do we have a clear biblical contradiction to what you just said. So let's be very careful as we work through this as a church to be faithful and not just say that this thought that you had in your mind is God's revelation. We can only be confident that something is God's revelation if it turns out to be true. To give you an example, a story Spurgeon tells a couple of stories where in the middle of a sermon he uses an example He'll say, there is a man who kept his shop open on the Sabbath, and he made so-and-so much money. And he has sold, in other words, he has sold his soul for this much money. It turns out after the sermon, there was a man who had kept his shop open on the Sabbath, and he had exactly made that much money. And so he came afterwards, and he said, how did you know? And Spurgeon was like, that's just, that's the spirit. Like, I didn't know. I don't know you. So I think in those cases that it can be shown to be a work of the Spirit because it turned out to be true, but we, we need to be careful that we don't say, I just heard a word from the Spirit, and we proclaim that. More so, we are focused on preaching the Word of God, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. I'll talk more about this in a moment. But we focus on the Word of God, and then we allow that the Spirit may operate in these ways that, that are mysterious and supernatural, and we allow that so we don't quench the spirit, but at the same time, we don't, we don't run after this prophecy and focus on it and say, how can I prophesy? And every thought that comes across my mind is a prophecy. No, we focus on what we know is true and allow that God may use supernatural means like that to bring people to himself or bring conviction. So I think New Testament prophecy is foretelling in these ways, but I also see prophecy as foretelling And that God, through the Spirit, applies his word to the hearer in such a way that conviction comes and lives are changed. I would call that prophetic preaching. Now, why do I see both of them? I think uh, both of them can be seen in 1 Corinthians 14, foretelling and foretelling. As I mentioned, Paul in verse 3 says that prophecy is edification, exhortation, and consolation in verse 3. So I think that's preaching. I think that's faithful biblical preaching. You're building up the body. You're exhorting them. You're edifying them. You're consoling or comforting them. Paul refers to that as prophecy. But at the same time, Paul also refers to prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14 as disclosing the secrets of the heart, as mentioned earlier, verse 25. That an unbeliever may enter, the secrets of his heart is disclosed, and so he repents. I think that's also prophecy. And then in verse 30, interestingly, prophecy is referred to as a revelation from God. So I see prophecy, New Testament, biblical prophecy as foretelling and foretelling. And I think we see both of these in 1 Corinthians 14. But I think we have to be careful at the same time that this New Testament prophecy, this foretelling, this revelation from God must be put up to be judged, must be judged based on Scripture and in the context of faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, and it's not to be put on the same plane as God's revealed word. God will not add to his word by prophecy. Prophecy is not on the same level as God's revealed word. We must be careful always to keep that distinction. That's one reason why I like Packer's definition of prophecy, which is a God-prompted application of truth. I think that encompasses both foretelling and foretelling. It is God-prompted, and it is the application of biblical truth. So you can say, okay, Josh, that's great, but what would that look like? Someone just jumps up in the middle of the sermon and says, I have a prophecy? Honestly, I don't know. This is something that I'm wrestling with. That, um, What does that look like? I think you can, you, can, you can go into excesses on one side, and you can go into excesses on the other. You can go into excesses of just pandemonium, people standing up in tongues and prophesying, and people falling over, being slain in the Spirit. And, and you can go into excesses on the other side, where it's like, 
Everything is everything has to be written down in order, like, like of course orderly, but it has to be has to be formal and, and and dictated. And anyone who steps outside of that is nope. So how does that look in the church? I don't know. I'm still wrestling with it. I'm still thinking through how that is to look in a way that it's orderly and careful to be God glorifying, and yet at the same time be open to God's promptings. So let me give you maybe a few ways that that could what that could look like in the church. But as I mentioned, I'm still wrestling through that, what that looks like. But I think at the very least it means this. Number one, being open to God's promptings. I think that is what we see here. I think at the very least you can say that the Thessalonians were not open to prophecy. That's what despising means. They were setting it at naught. They were counting it as nothing. They were ignoring it. So I think at the very least we should be open to the, the work of the Spirit in prophecy. I think number two, as I mentioned earlier, that we need to be very careful not to say things like God told me or God says, as we may not be hearing from God. Unless, of course, you're saying God says, followed by reading Scripture. Because God does say Scripture. And by the way, I think that is often how prophecy plays out is you're talking to somebody and they're going through a rough time and a a verse comes to mind. Maybe that you didn't even know you knew. And you say, well, let's look at this verse. And I think that's God helping you. I think that's God giving you a word, a revelation of his word to apply to that person in that moment. I don't think you should be like, look at me, I'm a prophet. You should just be like, thank you, Lord. Thank you. For giving me that word to help my brother in this situation. Now, it may not always be prophecy. It may be that you just read that verse this morning and so it's in your mind. But God has worked in that even. God has worked in that and you've read in that morning what ended up being helpful for your brother or sister in Christ. That's why I think it's so important that we're not always trying to delineate what is prophecy, what is tongues. What, we're always so focused on that, but that we say, I'm going to be faithful to the word of God. I'm going to be open to his promptings and I'm going to leave him to decide what, if, when all that is and takes place. I'm going to focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the revealed word of God, and I'm going to let him handle that. And when he does, great, glorious. And if he doesn't, great, glorious. Okay? I think that helps us um, avoid some of the pitfalls of prophecy. Number three, be careful to hold only Scripture as authoritative and the standard by which these promptings are judged. We must always judge prophecy by the Scriptures and not vice versa. This is sometimes what you see in charismatic churches, that they... They, they take it the other way, that we are to judge the scriptures by prophecy. And they think we have, this, we have this more recent prophetic word from God. So there is a more clear, newer revelation from God that helps us understand these old revelations. The newer is better than the old. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, let me show you Second Peter. What does Peter say? This is ought to be something that we lock into our minds when we think about prophecy or any of the gifts of the Spirit. Peter says in chapter 1 of Second Peter, he's already in verse 16, 17, talked about, we are on the mountain, Peter says. We are eyewitnesses of his majesty. We heard the voice. And yet, in verse 19, he says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a darkness until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You say, well, what's he talking about here? Well, it's clear from verse 20 because he goes on to talk about Scripture. And the prophecy of Scripture, that Scripture was given by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. So he's saying that the Scriptures are the prophetic word made more sure and what you are to pay attention to is the prophetic word of God in the Scriptures. You'd think if anybody would be like, the scriptures are nice, but I heard a voice. It would be Peter. I was on the mountain, guys. Come on now. What you need to do is just hang out on mountains and wait for a voice. No, Peter says, here is our prophetic word made more sure. We must always make sure that we, we put prophecy and these gifts as subject to God's revealed word. We see this even Paul at the end of his uh, prophecy chapter. 
in 1 Corinthians 14, he ends by saying this in verses 37 and 38. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. You see the danger there? Someone could be like, I am a prophet, and I have just heard a word from the Lord that Paul is full of baloney. People could be like, well, Paul was yesterday. This guy is today. So I'm going to listen to what he says. And so Paul is saying, no, let this prophet, let this prophecy be subject, be secondary, be lower than what I write to you. What I write to you. What do we have written from Paul? We have it here. God's, or or the, 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 the prophet's prophecy must always be subject to the revealed word of God. And then Paul says, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Meaning, if his prophecy goes against what I just wrote here, he is not a prophet. He is not truly prophesying. This is the standard. We must be very careful to apply that anytime that we expect or that we see prophecy employed. It must be subject to God's written, revealed word. So moving to our second point, what does Paul mean by despising prophecy? Well, as I mentioned, I think this could mean they de-emphasized this foretelling component. It may be that they had seen some excess in, in Thessalonica, as in Corinthians. They may have seen some excess. And so they're like, you know what, this is getting out of hand. People are just popping up all over the place, and there's, everyone's calling this a prophecy. Let's just, let's just cut it all out. And so they swung too far in the other direction, and they said, no more, no more prophecy. But at the same time, Paul says a few times in Corinthians and other places, to earnestly desire to prophesy. And so the Thessalonians, they may not have uh, completely uh, abandoned it, but they might have just discouraged it. They might have just uh, put it aside and said, you know what, let's just ignore it. But Paul is saying, no, that you need to have a, a desire for prophecy. And so I think sometimes we may run afoul of this, despising prophecy, by saying that the gifts have ceased. Now, I know this is controversial because some of you are cessationists, meaning you think that the gifts have ceased in the first century. But let me encourage you to think of this scripture and say, Am I, is it possible that I could be despising or setting at naught or counting as nothing prophecy in a way that this scripture tells me not to do by saying that prophecy is no longer in the church. Let me encourage you to think about that. Now, I'm not saying that you are because, as I mentioned, I'm wrestling with scripture and I've come to the conclusion that prophecy is meant to be in the church. And you may have wrestled with scripture and you have a, you have a, 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 what you think is a solid biblical case that says that we are not to expect it in the church. But let me just encourage you to reevaluate your position to just to make sure that you are not despising prophecy. You're not setting it at naught. You're not treating it with contempt. But you are think, thinking biblically and carefully about how you approach prophecy. One way in which I think prophecy is clearly being despised is in the area of foretelling or what I would call prophetic biblical preaching. Now, some of you who are cessationists, I think I dare say that you think that prophecy is this prophetic preaching. It is preaching that is bold, that is convictional, that is incisive. And you say there's prophecy and so you do not despise prophecy in the form of biblical preaching. I think that's where probably a lot of you are. And I commend you for that, because I think in, in our world today, prophetic biblical preaching is being despised very clearly. Now, as I mentioned, I would define prophetic preaching as preaching that is bold, convictional, meaning it is aimed at conviction by the Holy Spirit, incisive or piercing, and timely. It is bold, convictional, incisive, and timely. 
So that incisive, as I mentioned, is piercing. And I would see that as from Hebrews chapter 4, you know the verse. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as a division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The piercingness of the word of God, I think, is shown in the latter part of verse 12 and in verse 13. The word pierces such that the thoughts and intentions of the heart are laid bare. There is no creature hidden from his sight. Everything is open and laid bare. So I think true biblical faithful preaching must wield the word of God such that it cuts and lays bare the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Any preaching that does not do that is not prophetic and is not faithful. So to put it more simply, I think faithful biblical preaching is prophetic, meaning it is confrontational. Confrontational. Let me give you a few reasons why I think this, especially out of the book of Acts. The book of Acts, I think, shows us powerfully what we are to expect of preaching. We see the Holy Spirit-empowered ministry of the apostles being bold, convictional, incisive, and timely, meaning it's applied to that time. We see an example in Acts chapter 2. This is in the middle of Peter's sermon. You remember, he says, he's talking about Jesus. He says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Then in verse 36, Peter says, Therefore, after he has done hermeneutics, he's done biblical interpretation, he's showing from Old Testament scripture, and he applies it. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I think this Holy Spirit-empowered preaching is by nature piercing, confrontational. And we see the result, don't we? Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? So Peter didn't say, this is Jesus, and some bad things happened, and he ended up uh, crucified, and then, and stuff. You crucified him. You did. This is on your hands. We see it also in Acts chapter 13. Paul. Elymas, the, Elymas, the magician, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And it says in verse 9, But Paul, who was also known, Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Paul is confronting him boldly. This is what you are doing. We see this also in, the, in answer to their prayer in Acts chapter 4, 29-31. It says, these are the prayer of those gathered followers of Christ who are gathered together. It says, Now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and key phrase here, and began to speak the word of God with boldness. The Holy Spirit-empowered ministry of the apostles, the Holy Spirit-empowered preaching, was marked by boldness, by a piercing conviction aimed at the hearers. But do we not see this type of preaching despised everywhere? Have you seen it? More and more people are flocking to preachers who are 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 preachers. You know the passage. Seeking to have their ears tickled, they gather to themselves teachers in accordance with their own views. 
Let's go to a church where the pastor pats me on the back and says, whatever you want to believe, brother. Whatever you want to believe. Is that where you are? Cool, 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 cool. Or let's go to a church that is entertainment and the pastor is like a stand-up comedian and the music is, is concert level, professional, and there's smoke and lights and mirrors and signs and, and there's videos and it's just engaging and it's dark in here like a studio and lasers. And then I come away and I say, that was fun. That was fulfilling. That was enjoyable. That is not a time wasted. Biblical preaching, though, is meant to pin you to your seat. It's meant to be the word of God cutting through your heart to, to stupefy you in the face of this glorious God and in the, in the, in the wonders of the word and the spirit is just applying it and you're, and you're almost crushed and reborn every time. You are convicted. You're brought low in humbleness and repentance and you're raised up in hope and joy offered to you in Jesus Christ. That is what preaching is meant to be. Or, they will desire sound preaching, but not preaching that confronts the culture or their sin. Don't we see this? Prophetic preaching applies biblical truth to the present situation which inevitably leads to stepping on toes. Biblical, faithful preaching is prophetic in that it applies biblical truth to the times, to the hearers, to the culture, and says, Thus saith the Lord, I am holding forth the word of God. This is what it says about you. This is what it says about the culture. This is what it says about the government. That is what we need more than anything. We despise prophecy by gathering to safe, comfortable preaching. Preaching that demands nothing from us and comforts us in our situation. Now don't mishear me. I'm not saying prophetic preaching is meant to be angry and yelling and you're all terrible and you're all... I'm not saying that that's what prophetic preaching is. I think prophetic preaching should include, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 14, encouragement, edification, exhortation. This is comfort, encouragement. Here's the key difference. We need to be very careful with this. The comfort, the encouragement must be done biblically. Biblically. Not through manipulating the emotions, through telling these moving stories so that you're, oh... Not like a Hallmark card kind of a sermon. Where you come away just mm, teary-eyed, that was nice. But the comfort offered to you must be in the biblical way. How does the Bible comfort? How does the Bible encourage? It says, remember God and remember his promises. You see how the, 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 what the disconnect that happens there? When we want to be comforted, we want our emotions to be, to, to be massaged and kind of uh, shaped such that we come away, mm, we float out of the room. But the Bible says, if you want to be comforted, let me give you some cold hard facts. Here's God. Here's his promise. I don't know, man. Like, can you say it? Can you sing it in a song? Can you make it more poetic? No, the Bible's like, if you want to be comforted, we saw it here in 1 Thessalonians. When Paul's talking about those who have died in Christ, he says, this is the truth. This is what's going to happen. Those who have died will, meet, will be first taken up and they'll meet the Lord in the air and then we will be all caught up together with him. Learn this truth. Understand this truth. Speak to one another of this truth and comfort one another with these words, Paul says. It doesn't say comfort one another with a moving chorus of kumbaya around a campfire, after which you dance arm in arm under the moonlight. No. Understand with your reason, with your mind, the truth that is communicated to you about God and his promises. Say, yes, these are true. And if you are a Christian, your heart will be warmed and you'll say, yes, amen, glory, hallelujah, I am comforted. 
And so, in other words, your comfort under prophetic preaching is confrontational. The pastor should say, what are you finding your comfort in? Biblically speaking, this is what you're to find your comfort in. What God says of himself, what God promises, and what God fulfills. Are you taking comfort in these other things? Quit it. You say, Josh, that's harsh. Remember Jesus? He does the same. He says, be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication, right? Be anxious for nothing. Actually, I think that might be Paul, the second part. Anyway, Jesus says not to worry. And then he says about the, feet, the, the flowers, and he says about the birds, right? He's commanding you not to worry. He doesn't say, strumming a guitar, he doesn't say, you know, sometimes we feel... No, he just says, stop it. Stop. Remember this truth. Look at the flowers. Look at the birds. Reason. By looking at the birds and saying, God provides for them, he will provide for me. He doesn't give you a poem about the birds. He doesn't give you a poem about the flowers. He says, stop it and reason this way. So it's confrontational. It's piercing. That is prophetic preaching. And yet so often in our culture, especially evangelicalism, people are despising prophetic preaching. Forthtelling or prophetic preaching should say, thus saith the Lord. It must pronounce God's truth in the face of a world of lies. Prophetic preaching must boldly contradict the world, the flesh, and the devil at every turn. You realize that the devil would have you live and move and have your being surrounded in a world full of lies. You look at the world, lies. Social media, lies. News, lies. You look at your flesh, your desires, lies. You look at the devil, the father of lies. And God would have the word, his word, contradict and confront every lie that surrounds you. We, I think, as Christians, so often are comfortable with avenues of truth. As long as I have this lane of truth, I'm good. No, no. As long as I'm good in this area, that's good enough. I'll get to heaven, I'll be like, I have this lane, God. No, God everywhere is attacking every lie in your life. What are the lies that you're believing about fatherhood, about husbanding, about mothering, about wifing, about working, about voting, about uh, living in a community, about being a neighbor, about taking care of your yard, about, about being a good steward of your resources? What are all the lies that you're believing about these things? The word of God attacks them all. And preaching is meant to open up the word of God and say, thus saith the Lord about blank. Parenting. And you are to be confronted lovingly so that you will be able to discern lies and say, no, that's a lie. No, that's a lie. No, that's a lie. How do you know? Because here's the truth. Preaching must point you to that every time. Yes, we must be careful to apply scripture rightly so as not to command conscience or add rules and regulations so we need to be careful that, that prophetic preaching can turn into kind of a, a monster that eats itself, where, where the pastor is so in, intent on being prophetic that he goes into, you shouldn't watch R-rated movies, and, you should, and he starts adding all these rules. I think we have to be very careful about that, because I think the, one of the essences of, or the fundamental elements of prophecy is application, and yet the preacher, the pastor, the minister can easily stray into over-applying. That's very true. I think we see that in certain circles. It's something I watch out for. But I think you would agree with me. The greater danger in North America at this moment in the visible church is not applying the scripture at all. I'll give you an example. We now have the strange phenomenon 
of otherwise conservative Christians who are not applying the scriptures to race, politics, ethics, and by that I mean LGBT, who would have thought that we'd enter an era in which otherwise conservative Christians, meaning they seem to hold to the true salvation by grace through faith, and they seem to talk about justification rightly, they seem to value the word of God, and yet they're saying things they're applying, or they're, they're, they're talking about race and politics and LGBT and all these ways, things in ways that don't seem to reflect the Word of God. And I think a lot of this is due to the, to fading, to the fading of prophetic preaching from our pulpits. As the devil finds new ways to deceive, for instance, critical race theory, we, the preachers, should be diligent to discern the danger and then blast it into oblivion using the power of the preached word. God has given us a powerful weapon. We should use it. Now, I'm not going to go into um, attacking critical race theory in this sermon because it's not about that. But you can go to scriptures, Ephesians chapter 3, and all the places that talk about the dividing line and and talk about the unity in Christ. And you should say critical race theory is anti-gospel, is anti-Christianity, it is false gospel. We should apply the teaching of the word of God to the current lie. And yet you see conservative Christians ignoring whole swaths of cultural discussion. That, my friends, is not prophetic preaching. Prophetic preaching speaks to the culture, it speaks to the government, it speaks to the human heart, and it trusts that the word of God will discern the thoughts of the hearts and open it up and lay it bare. Contrasting that, preaching that is winsome, attractional, winning, will never do that. It will instead be infiltrated by the world and affect a softening and then a compromise. If the preaching is determined to be attractional or people are attracted to it and it's winsome and winning and no one is offended, guess what? You have nothing to offer. Your preaching should be offensive insofar as the gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive and the word of God to Christians who desire to walk faithfully and obediently in following their Savior Jesus Christ is offensive to our flesh. But preaching that is winsome and attractional and winning will ultimately lead to nothing but softening and then compromise. In other words, preaching must be authoritative. The authority of the word, not the pastor, the authority of God. Finally, how can we embrace prophecy? How can we embrace prophecy? So how, we, don't, we don't want to despise, set it not prophecy, but how do we embrace it? First, going off the point I just made, embrace prophetic preaching. Embrace preaching that cuts you to the quick. I don't mean preaching that makes you feel like, I'm not saying that prophetic preaching is marked by you feeling depressed every time you leave church. I'm talking about prophetic preaching that cuts you to the heart and you say, how good and glorious is my God. How good and glorious is my Savior Jesus Christ. I desire to walk in obedience and to put to death the sins of the flesh and to walk in the Spirit. And so I am encouraged and strengthened and exhorted to kill this sin that is besetting me. And by God's grace through the sermon, he has put his finger on that sin. By God's grace through his sermon, he has shown me ways in which I am deficient in my goal of showing my love and devotion to my Savior through obedience. And so I embrace prophetic preaching, not because it beats me down. I embrace prophetic preaching because it discerns my heart and I am so easily deceived. And so I need to know my heart. I need to know so I can walk in obedience and faithfulness. And I can turn to my brother and sister who is sitting under the same sermon and say, will you help me, brother? I need help in this. And you can come to the pastor and say, will you help me? That is the goal of prophetic preaching, to help each other grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So embrace prophetic preaching and encourage your your family friends to embrace it. 
encourage them away from that feel-good, everybody's wonderful, we're all special snowflakes kind of preaching, and point them to this confrontational, convictional, piercing preaching. Number two, evaluate preaching by the word only, not by your emotions or what is popular. Think, ask yourself, ask the sermon, is this biblical? To use it for this sermon, is this true what Josh is saying about this text, despising prophecy? Is this biblical? Because you want your authority to come from the word of God. You don't want it to come from the pastor. You want to read the text that the pastor helps you see and you say, this is what the word says. I will obey what it says. And so that means as you sit under prophetic preaching, you open God's word and you understand what God is saying. Not what the preacher is saying, but what God is saying through the preacher. Next. Allow that God may work through prophetic promptings. Allow that God may work through prophetic promptings. As I mentioned, I'm still working through what that looks like. But to give you an example, if God brings a verse or a hymn to mind while you are speaking to someone, say it. It may be God bringing this to mind to help you comfort your brother, help you encourage your brother. If you have, if you have a, a, a sense in which this person needs to be corrected or rebuked or admonished, which is all scriptural, then say it. We need to hear this. Say it gently. Say it lovingly. Say it scripturally. Give them a verse to say, it seems, brother, that you have, you, you, you have stepped off the path in this area as, as, as shown by this verse, by this passage. Let me encourage you to come back on the path. Sometimes we can be like, hey, I'm not the Holy Spirit, so I'm not going to say anything. Oh, be careful. Be open to the promptings of the Spirit that he may, be, he may use you to help your brother or sister. That's what the church is for. It's a community of believers walking together. Finally, pray for the Spirit's work in our church and in your life. Pray for prophecy in the pulpit. Pray for it in your home. I agree with Packer who says that prophetic preaching is is not necessarily what is premeditated and planned. But that prophecy and teaching can be kind of combined such that what is planned is, is spoken and it's, it's the Spirit working through the Word in the preparation of the pastor to, 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 to share the truth of God's Word. But then the Spirit also, through prophecy, enables the pastor to apply it to the hearers. So pray that God would use me to prophetically preach. And not, just, not that I wouldn't do any preparation. I'd just be getting to the pulpit and be like, I didn't prepare. I'm just going to open my mouth and let whatever comes out. No, that's not faithful. But that in my preparation and then in delivery, the Spirit suffuses and empowers it all so that boldness is the result. And pray for that for yourself in your home as you talk to your brothers and sisters in your family, your your extended family. As you talk to them about the gospel, pray that the Spirit uses you in a prophetic way to reach your family. So boldness, conviction, and maybe even the secrets of their heart. Lay bare. Think of prophecy as the spoken application of the word. And so desire prophecy in your life such that the application is penetrating, which leads toward healing, holiness, and repentance. And so as we transition to a time of communion, as the deacons get the elements together, We are understanding this, that this is the work of the Holy Spirit of God. In the first chapter of First Thessalonians, we see, verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And in verse 6, You have also become our imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of of the Holy Spirit. And so this, this power, this conviction, this joy comes from the Holy Spirit. And we see that this is rooted and grounded in the gospel. Faith in Jesus Christ. We see that in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. And then we see this in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5. That God has not destined the Thessalonians for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. And so this joy in the Holy Spirit, this power conviction, 
is, is this conviction that the gospel is true. We see that in verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and with full conviction. So they heard the gospel preached to them, and the Holy Spirit showed them this is true and gave them the conviction of the truth. What is the gospel? Only that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, that we are saved. So you can expect the power of the Spirit as a believer in Jesus Christ. As we see in the Gospel of John, the Spirit points to Christ. The Spirit brings to mind everything that Christ said. The Spirit glorifies the Son. And so if you have the Spirit within you, if you are prophesying by the Spirit truly, then you are a Christian. You cannot do it unless that you are a Christian. You have been convinced of the truth of God's word that his, his way of salvation is only through his son, Jesus Christ. You have put your faith in him. And because of that, because of regeneration and because of conversion, you have the spirit of God resting within you. And so this power and conviction and joy comes from the spirit within you and also the prophecy. So in some ways, this sermon today is an intramural sermon in that it is for believers only. It is within the body. And so if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have not put your faith and trust in him alone for salvation, not trusting to your good works, not trusting to your church attendance, not trusting to this time you raised your hand and signed a card and said a prayer, but you're trusting in Christ alone for salvation, then this promise is for you. The hope that you have in Christ of not being destined for wrath, but for salvation and the work of the spirit within you to give you joy and and conviction and prophecy. Now, don't mistake, don't mistake me and say that I'm encouraging you to seek Christ so that you can gain prophecy. No, the joy, the treasure is Jesus Christ and the spirit points to him. Prophecy points to him. Prophecy points to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you, if you're not a a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've not put your faith and trust in him, do so now. Repent of your sin. Place your faith in Christ alone for salvation. Understand that you need salvation. And trust him alone to save you. If you would like to talk more about it, come to me after the service. I'd love to talk to you more. What it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ to be free from the wrath of God, not having it rest on you. Because for those outside of Christ, God will damn them eternally. But for those who are in Jesus Christ, he has not destined them for wrath, but for salvation because of his death and resurrection for them. And so this communion, this wine, which by the way is non-alcoholic, this wine and this bread symbolizes the, bread, the, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, shed for you, broken for you. And so this is a communion, or this is an ordinance, this is an acted-out sermon for believers only. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, we ask that you not take of the elements, that you do not take of the wine, you do not take of the blood, because you are proclaiming when you take these, the Lord's death until he comes. You're saying, my death... You're saying Christ's death in place of my death. Christ's life in place of my life. Christ shed blood instead of my shed blood. Christ's broken body instead of my broken body. I hold the body and blood of Christ as the only perfect sacrifice on my behalf. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, and you hold up the cup and the bread and you say that, then you are lying. So I encourage you, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, let the elements pass you by, or if you've taken them, don't, take, don't partake of them. This is for professing believers, people who trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Has everyone received one? Who would like to receive one? All right. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we praise and thank you for the broken body and shed blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is only through that perfect sacrifice substituted for us that we can be saved. That by his death and on the cross, he has taken the penalty for our sins. And so we proclaim the Lord's death as our salvation. We, we proclaim the Lord's death as our glory. The thing that we glory in. Because there we, we are shown your perfect, wondrous grace. Father, help us to walk in light of it, always. Not just to go through the motions of drinking and eating, but to live our lives in humble worship for our Savior going to the cross for us. Help us, Father, not to despise prophecy, but to be open, to be faithful, to be careful, to govern it by your word. to expect you to move powerfully, even if we may never see it or hear it, to expect you by your spirit to raise the dead, to grow us in sanctification, to use the preached word, to grow believers, to call non-believers to repentance, to use Christian conversation, to sanctify to rebuke, admonish, encourage, edify, exhort, strengthen, that your spirit powerfully works. Give us hearts of prayer, Father, for your spirit, not to neglect him, not to see the spirit as only the domain of the charismatics, but to see your spirit as powerfully at work among us. Father, also help us to avoid the excess and where we focus more on the gifts and the giver that we govern everything by your word and we're careful to submit everything to your word, to judge by your word. Father, help us to be bold as they were in Acts, to preach in a way that applies it, applies it to the culture, to the heart, to the time in which we live, and not to be compromising, not to be comfortable, but to expect by your spirit for the word to penetrate, expose, to be powerful so that in every way you are glorified in our preaching, in our hearing, and in trusting the work of your spirit to apply the gospel and the word for our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.